All right, as you're having a seat, please turn to uh, Exodus chapter 1. Um, I want to start by telling you a little story. This week I had a really interesting interaction with Blake Jennings and Matt Morton. Uh, those are the guys who teach at our other our campuses. And uh, we were talking about the Marvel comic series of movies, right? So I'm going to assume that most of you are somewhat familiar with that. Um, maybe you haven't been to a movie in 11 years and you don't know anything about Marvel. Uh, but they, the Marvel uh, Studios cranked out 23 films over the last 11 years. And they're about characters like uh, you know, Thor and Iron Man and... Black Widow and Captain Marvel and Captain America and um, Incredible Hulk, right? Not, not Batman, not Superman, not Wonder Woman, right? Which are not nearly as good. I'm just saying the character development is not nearly as good, which is totally and utterly beside my point. But talking about Marvel, right? So as Matt and Blake and I were talking, talking about these Marvel movies, discovered that uh, this summer... Matt went to uh, Avengers Endgame, which is kind of the, the culminating story of this long storyline. So he went to Avengers Endgame, and Matt was completely and utterly lost by the storyline. And you say to yourself, well, why? I mean, Matt seems like a reasonably intelligent young man. How is it that Matt was completely and utterly lost as he was watching this movie? Here's what happened. In 2008, Matt went to see Iron Man, right, the first Iron Man, and then he hasn't watched any of the other movies until he watched the final movie, which I'm like, you have got to be absolutely kidding me, Matt. Why? Why, why would you do that? Now, let me make a point of comparison. Uh, Blake Jennings and I uh, independently each saw all of the movies in order because that's right, right? <laughs> I mean, I, just, I was just imagining myself going with Matt, unbeknownst to me, to Marvel's Endgame. And Matt would be that guy, right? So who is that character? Wait, how did they tie in? Why, why isn't Hulk as angry as he used to be? Why is that lady's skin blue, right? I mean, it would just drive you crazy. Why would you do that, Matt? You just jumped into the very end point of this very long story, and you're completely and utterly confused. Now, I don't want you to feel like Matt Morton in Endgame this morning, so we're going to kind of do a little background, right? Because as we start Exodus, we're actually kind of jumping into a story that's already been going on for a while, right? Thematically, Genesis, in my opinion, covers like a third of the major themes of the Bible, and um, we're not going to talk about uh, Genesis this fall. And the reason for that is I taught Genesis a few years ago, and it took an entire year, and I didn't even cover all of Genesis an entire year. So if you want to go back and listen to that series on Genesis, you can. But what I want to do this morning is kind of catch us up before we jump into uh, the book of Exodus. So we're going to be in the Pentateuch all semester. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, The Greek word Pentateuch means... Five books, and so that's, that's easy. First five book, books, Pentateuch. There are a lot of events and a lot of characters and a lot of nations involved, but essentially the story comes down to one God and one family. Right, one God and one family. God, Yahweh, and the family from Abraham and Sarah that would eventually become a nation that would be called Israel. So what do we know about uh, Yahweh at this point in time? Um, it's actually Y-H. W-H. You'll notice uh, there aren't even any vowels in there because no one, no one actually knows how to pronounce the name of God. This is the personal name of God. Right? It's not a title. God has other titles and he has, has other descriptive names. 
like um, God Most High or the God who sees, the God who provides. This is, this is God's personal name, and uh, it, it actually just shows up in the Hebrew text as four consonants with no vowels. So years ago, uh, the Jewish people inserted the vowels from Adonai and pronounced it Yahweh. Actually, most Jews won't even say it. They'll just say the name, okay, Hashem, because it's so sacred because it is God's personal covenant name, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it uh, next week when we get into Exodus 3, but uh, the, the name actually comes from a verb, to be, the verb to be. So God's personal name, right, not his title, right, so like I have a title pastor, but my name is Brian Gregory Fisher, that's my personal name. His personal name means in a sense, I am. Just, just I am. It's the most fundamental descriptive phrase of God, not, not I was or I will be, but I am. God is the the self-existent one. He is dependent on no one and nothing else. God exists. God can't not exist. God can't not be present. God is always present in all places at all times because he says, I am. And no one else can say that like God says that. So God is the eternally existent one. He's the one who at a certain point in time uh, spoke and created out of nothing. And obviously he was the only one who could do that because before anything existed, there was only God. But there was only Yahweh. And at the very pinnacle of his creative activity, he made creatures that would be reflective of his image, right? Image bearers. I want you to turn, hold your place here in Genesis. We'll be back there in just a minute. But turn to Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all of the earth, and over every moving thing that moves upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this idea of being in the image of God is probably one of the most significant concepts in all of the Bible. It's very, very complex, but I want to boil it down to four things for you. You you and I are in the image of God, and what that means for us is is four things, at least. First is that that we relate to God, that is, we're we're capable of having a, a personal relationship with the personal God. No other creatures can have a relationship like we have with God. Let me illustrate for you. I I just uh, got a puppy yesterday. Yeah. Trish said, you should put up a picture of the puppy. That'll just really grab him. (laughs) So I got a puppy yesterday. Uh, um, I don't relate to the puppy like I relate to my children. Why? Because it's not personal. Right? It's not personal. It's not a personal being. I hope that I relate to this puppy better than I relate to all of our cats. <laughs> but, you know, it could be that we may shift here from the story of our four stray cats that my daughter has collected to puppy. It could be puppy stories from now on. I'm not sure. Um, I hope that I have a better relationship. But it won't be a relationship anything like I have with my wife or with my kids because it's a dog. Right? God doesn't relate to dogs like he relates to people and he doesn't relate to cats at all. Right? <laughs> true (laughs) you and I have the capacity to have a personal relationship with the personal God 
We have the capacity to reflect the character, character or the personality of our God. His moral attributes, his, his conscience, his will, his, his ability to, to, to choose, his, his knowledge of right and wrong. We have a capacity to reflect the nature of God and the personality of God. We can radiate the glory of God. In fact, we'll, we'll look at this moment uh, in a few weeks where Moses is in the presence of God and what happens to him. It starts to glow, right? We, we were made with a beauty and a dignity that no other creature has. And in fact, what we see uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration will ultimately be reflected, according to the book of Daniel, in, in our physical glorified beings. It will be a glorified body. We, we will reflect the, the beauty of the Lord like no other creature can. Consequently, we can represent God as well, right? When we're living in right relationship with God and we're reflecting his attributes, we begin to radiate the glory and beauty of God in our personality, in our action, in our, 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 our attitudes, our words, our speech. And as a result, we represent God on earth. We represent God on earth. So summing all that up, a few years ago, I came up with what I described kind of as a summary sentence of the Bible. And I state it like this. God intends to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through humanity or through human representation. Uh, It's probably not the perfect sentence. It's maybe not the best ever. But for me, it kind of helps me wrap my mind around what's actually transpiring in the Bible. And a couple of things I want you to notice is this. The earth matters. God is doing something on earth. And history is moving a direction. God has a will. God has a purpose. And his purpose is to spread the knowledge of himself throughout all of his creation. Because he's worthy and deserves it, but also because that's the best thing for his creatures. He wants to do it in us and through us. And so he made man and he made woman. He made male. He made female in his image. And his image completed when we live in relationship to one another, in relationship with God. And we reflect the very character and quality and attributes of God himself. And God's committed to this. God is unfailingly committed to this purpose on earth, which is really, really fortunate for us because if you turn from Genesis 1, flip the page to Genesis 3, the whole thing seems to crash and burn. Right? Men and women, Adam and Eve, together decide, you know what, we're, we're going to live independently from God. Satan comes and he tempts them. He says, you know, really, the reason God's withholding this goodness from you is because he doesn't want you to be like him. And so Adam and Eve decide, you know, we don't actually have to live under God or in submission to God or in dependence upon God. We can live independently, which is, in fact, literally impossible. God is the only self-existent one. God is the one who's dependent on nothing and no one. We are contingent beings or we're dependent beings. We can't live apart from God. And so when Adam and Eve make this decision to try to live apart from God, what do they experience? Death, not life. Right? Life is only found in relationship with God. Anything outside relationship with God is death. And so what happens to them initially is this physical separation. They're moved out of the garden. And as they move out of the garden, even their bodies begin to decay. And eventually they physically die because their inner man, the spirit, is separated from God. Then their spirit becomes separated from their body. They experience physical death, spiritual death. And if you look at the generations that follow Adam and Eve... Morally, as they move away from relationship with God, the culture just descends. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse to the point that God looks out over all of humanity and he says, is there anyone out here who loves me and follows me? And all that he can find is is one man and his family, Noah and his family. That's all. So he says, you know what? I'm going to start over with Noah. 
So he clears the earth. He starts over with Noah. And um, before the crops have hardly even started to come up, uh, Noah's family begins to degenerate as well. Right? He's got uh, an evil son that uh, uncovers him and just just immoral. And uh, you see the nations begin to degenerate more and more and more. They move further away from God. And there's a culminating moment. Uh, the story of the Tower of Babel is really significant. Because what happens in that moment is the people express their distrust of God. God has said, look, I'm going to put a, a sign in the sky. It's a rainbow. And the rainbow is going to prove to you that I'm never, going to, I'm never going to destroy humanity again like that. And they say, you know, we don't really trust God. What we really need is a tower. Because if floods come again from this God who can't be trusted, we can just climb the tower. And I, In fact, we're going to build a tower. We're going to bake the bricks because then the, the, the waves can't knock that you know, and cause it to to crumble. We're going to build it so high, we're going to reach into the heavens itself. We'll get back there. And instead of making a name for God, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and spreading the knowledge of the glory of God throughout the face of the earth, what we're going to do is we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God looks down and he sees that and he says, you know what? When they come together, bad things happen. In fact, I need to rescue them from themselves. So I'm going to scatter them. That's why God created languages. They couldn't communicate any longer protecting them from themselves, scattering them, uh, causing their, their communication to break down. God said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want them to self-destruct again. And so the nations are formed and languages are formed. But God's still committed to his plan, but with a new strategy. He's going to choose a family. And through that family, God is going to draw people back into relationship with Him himself, And he's going to restore their capacity to relate to him, to reflect his honor and glory, and represent him on the earth. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless the one who blesses you, the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. All right, so Abraham was given three promises. He said, God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you geographical territory. I'm also going to give you seed or descendants. In fact, he would say later, I'm going to give you so many descendants, it'll be like the the stars of the heavens. But I'm also going to give you blessing, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with relationship with me. I'm going to bless you uh, with protection. I'm going to bless you with prosperity. And as I bless you and you you and your family are in right relationship with me, I'm going to use you as the channel of blessing to all of the nations. You're going to be the source of blessing. You're, You're my new strategy, Abraham. To make sure that people are reconciled to relationship with me. They're put back right with me. And they discover again the purpose of their life to reflect my character, to represent me on earth. Abraham, it's going to be through you and it's going to be through your family. Now, we know, uh, because we've, we've read the New Testament, that that seed ultimately will be found in Jesus, right? He will be the seed of Abraham through whom all of the nations will be blessed. But at this point in time, they don't know that. Abraham is just uh, wishing on a star, right? I mean, he's like, I hope I get a family. I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old. Miraculously, God brings him a child, right? And the genealogy looks something like this, right? Abraham had a child, Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were so old that they named their child Isaac, which means laughter, because when they found out they're pregnant, they're going, oh, no way. How is this possible? But sure enough, there was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
But Jacob was the son through whom the promise would come. Esau actually became a large family and a nation uh, earlier than Jacob did. That was the Edomites. But Jacob was the one through whom the promise would come. Jacob had 12 sons who would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Actually, Levi wouldn't get a geographical area and Joseph would receive uh, a double portion. So Ephraim and Manasseh would take his place. Those would be the 12, 12 geographic tribes of Israel. But what you notice as you read the story of this family is it becomes incredibly dysfunctional. Right? Jacob had children by uh, two wives and multiple servants of his wives. So f- four ladies. Um, it's very competitive. He showed uh, favoritism initially toward Joseph and later Toward Benjamin, and so the brothers were, were jealous and they fought, and, and they were um, just really a pretty immoral lot on the whole. In fact, at one point in time, Joseph came, came to his sons and he said, You know what? You have made me odious in the eyes of the people of this land. Rather than being a blessing to the people of Canaan, I am, I'm like a curse to them. And things got so bad within the family, you probably remember the story that some of the brothers decided, you know what, let's, let's just take this favorite son and let's sell him. I mean, they thought, they thought about killing him. They said, you know what, why, why kill him? Why waste that? Let's sell him and we can make a little bit of money off him. And sold him as a slave. And Joseph went down uh, to Egypt as a prisoner who was, who was purchased. And uh, then in the course of events, Joseph begins to rise to prominence. And as he's rising to prominence, a famine hits the land of Canaan. And God's Chosen people through whom he is going to bless the earth are at risk of being wiped out. People are dying of famine. But because Joseph has been sent ahead and he rises to prominence, his family is able to come to Egypt and he rescues them. Right? God performs this incredible deliverance physically of the family. They don't starve to death. So God's plan is not stopped. They don't starve to death, but also spiritually, God God rescues them by taking them out of the land of Canaan where they're becoming an increasingly corrupt and immoral family. He takes them into Egypt. The Egyptians won't intermarry them, so they, they aren't influenced by the Egyptians' false gods, right? So they're protected spiritually. They're protected physically. And then at the end of this, this cycle, Joseph actually makes a beautiful statement. He says this. He says, As for you, speaking to his brothers... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Do you see what Joseph is saying? He's saying, yeah, I I suffered at your hands. (laughs) But my life is part of this, this broader story that God is writing and God is in charge. And so God took even that evil that you meant against me and he worked a greater good, that is to preserve our family. How much did Joseph understand that in preserving the family, he was also preserving the salvation of all mankind? I don't know if Joseph understood that, but he did understand this, that there was a bigger story and his life was just a piece of that story. And God was using not just his rise to power, but even the moments of suffering to accomplish a greater good. So this remarkable, dramatic deliverance is accomplished and then nothing. For 400 years, this family grew in silence. There wasn't a word from the Lord. Complete silence. Have you ever felt like God was silent in your life? Have you ever wondered, is he he present? 
in those moments of silence? Has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? Has God overlooked me? Uh, in 1996, March, Tristy and I were, um, we had uh, set up all the arrangements to get married in uh, March. And uh, so in February, I left the country. <laughs> I really did, but not like to get away or anything. I, I left because I, uh, I was teaching theology in, uh, in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan. A friend and I went for 10 days to, uh, actually two weeks, went, uh, to teach two weeks of um, systematic theology to church planners and evangelists, uh, some, some Campus Crusade for Christ staff and some others who were working in church ministry. And uh, we decided, you know, we, let's just tack on a couple extra days at the end since we have to fly uh, back through Moscow. And neither of us ever, had ever been to Moscow. We thought this would be really cool just to, to tour and to see what's going on in Moscow. So uh, we, we, got, we flew back on the way and we stopped in Moscow, got off the plane, got out. And we didn't realize at that point in time that um, Moscow's not really the best place to visit in February. Right? I mean, we, the, the upside was we were like literally the only tourists walking around Red Square. It was so cold. It was just so incredibly cold. But we had a blast, right? So we walked around. We visited everything for a couple days. Uh, and then when our time ended, we got a cab and we went to, we went to the airport, uh, Sheremetyevo Airport. And we discovered once we got at the airport that there actually are two Sheremetyevo airports. There's a domestic and an international. And we had been dropped off at the wrong which is on the opposite side of the city. So after 30 minutes of figuring out we're actually literally at the wrong airport, we got another cab. We got all the way across the city, right? So time was really tight now. It's really, really tight. And we, we rushed in and we got to passport control. And when we showed up, passport control through broken English, uh, the, the, the uh, Russian soldier told us, um, you have overstayed your visa by two days. Right? So whoever booked our flight did not change our visa to include two days in Moscow. And he says, you know, you, you have broken the law. You cannot get on the plane. Sit over there. Right? So remember, I'm, I'm getting married in about three weeks. Right? So he says, sit over there. So we sit down and people are going through the line. Going through, everyone goes through the line. Literally everyone goes through the line. There's no one left in the line at passport control the uh, three soldiers who are manning the booths, they leave, right? We can look down the hallway. We see everyone getting on our plane, and we see the door close, everyone getting on the plane. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in one of those moments, right? This is, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, even email was horrible, but we didn't have a computer. There's no internet access in the show. get to an airport in Moscow. I mean, they don't even turn on the lights. Literally cats running around. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> It's absolutely crazy. I mean, no one, literally, no one knew where we were. No one knew the dilemma we were facing. No one, there was no one to help us at all. And then one of the soldiers came back up and he said, you know, this is, this is a fine of $50. And my friend John, he was super hacked at that point in time. He's like, I am not paying this guy $50. And I go, I am getting married in three weeks. And I handed over my $50. You're on your own, dude. So he coughed up his 50 bucks. We rushed down there. I don't know if they were just playing us or what, but they opened up the gate again. We got on the plane, we got home. And, you know, so now I have, you know, I'm married. I have uh, two children. I have uh, a dog and four stray cats, right? So, I mean, it it worked out sort of in the end. Um, But man, it was a, that was a horrible feeling. I mean, I knew two words of Russian at that point in time, right? Da and yet. I I didn't know anything and no one knew I was there and I was alone and, and, we did, we prayed. 
Lord, do you see us? Have you ever felt like um, God's silent? I want you to turn the book of Exodus now, chapter 1 and verse 1. When Exodus begins, Israel feels like God has forgotten them. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So 70 people came down and during their time in Egypt, this small-ish family became the size of a nation. Two million people, but they didn't have land and they had absolutely no sovereignty and they weren't even sure if they still had a God. God hadn't spoken to them in 400 years. And probably in their mind, they saw their God as all of the other gods around them, which was that those gods were local or regional. Right? They had authority or power over, over a city or over a region, over maybe a nation. But they didn't have universal power. And since they were now out of the land of Canaan, and apparently their God was connected, connected to the land of Canaan, maybe he had just moved on to another people. Or maybe he didn't have power that would extend over them now that they were in Egypt. And they wondered, God, have you, have you forgotten us? It seemed as if God was silent. Really, they didn't know God, did they? We have, we, have, we have the Pentateuch. They didn't even have the Pentateuch. They didn't have that. They had a few stories about God, but they didn't know him. And they wondered, God, are you going to speak again? God, do you remember us at all? Have you ever had that feeling? Why don't you listen to the words of David, Psalm chapter 22. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Those words sound familiar, don't they? Because as Jesus was hanging on the cross, suffering, crucified, this is all he could think of. To quote the words of David. God, here I am. Have you forgotten me? Have you turned your back on me? Why are you silent before me? Why are you not answering? Why are you not responding? Have you ever felt that way? This is exactly how Israel felt in this moment. And I wonder, why is that? Why is God sometimes silent in our lives? I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 God spoke to Abram. This is the second time he has spoken a promise to Abram. Chapter 12 was the first time. Chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 and verse... Let's start in verse 12. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve... And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. 
For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, notice, uh, God knew that they were going to go into Egypt. He knew that they would be slaves in Egypt. He knew how long it would last. He knew it would be 400 years. Was God doing anything during that 400 years? Well, yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting. Notice the last phrase there. He says, in the fourth generation, they will return here because the iniquity of the Amorite, which is another designation for the Canaanite people, it's not yet complete. In other words, during that 400 years, God was giving the Canaanite people an opportunity to turn toward him or to turn away from him. During that 400 years that God was silent with his own people and allowing them to grow up into the size of a nation, God was also at work in the Canaanites' lives, and he was holding back judgment on them so they would have an opportunity to turn to him and repent. Remember uh, last week we looked at 2 Peter chapter 3. God, why are you so slow about your promises? And Peter says he's not. He's not slow at all. But sometimes you don't see him acting immediately or speaking immediately. Why? Because he's waiting and giving people an opportunity to repent in that moment. So why is God silent in your life and in my life? I don't know. Like, I I don't know specifically. I don't know what he's, I don't know specifically what he's doing in that silence. I know this. He's promised you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm with you. I'm present with you. And I am working. Sometimes what he's doing in his silence to you is there's work he's doing in other people's lives around you. Turn to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Do you see how he's just piled those words on top of each other? God heard, God remembered, God saw, God took notice, God was paying attention. God had not abandoned them. Church, uh, we're we're in the middle of a story. We're in the middle of a story. And the story is actually not about us. The story includes us, but the story's not about us. The story is about the seed of Abraham. The story's about Jesus and about God reconciling people into relationship with himself through Jesus. And so God includes us in that. Sometimes the most powerful way that he can include us into that bigger story is in his silence in our lives. Why is God silent specifically in your life? I don't know, but he never forgets you. And because he's Yahweh... He can't not be present with you. It's impossible for God to be absent from your life. And so sometimes the most powerful way that God works in our lives and through our lives, teaching us to trust him that he hasn't forgotten us, and consequently radiating our trust to the people around us, is in the midst of silence. God is present even in silence. God is present even when we're suffering Read with me chapter 1, verse 8 of Exodus. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, and fight against us, and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were the dread of the sons of Israel. They were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and in all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. So for 400 years, uh, it seems that God is silent. For 400 years, it seems that God's people are suffering under slavery. Why? Why does God allow his people to suffer? Uh, I'm actually going to give you three reasons for that. I want you to hold your place here in Exodus and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 12. First Peter 4, verse 12. It reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In fact, you know, Peter is just echoing what is consistent throughout the New Testament. One of the primary reasons we suffer is because we identify with Jesus Christ. Right? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Promise. Right? One of the few promises we write on the mirror. Right? We don't cling to that one, but it's explicit. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So sometimes we suffer because we've chosen to publicly identify our lives with Jesus Christ. But there's another reason, verse 15, it says, Now make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Right? Sometimes, even as Christians, we suffer because of our own sin. We do. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. In fact, you know, it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper and how to conduct the Lord's Supper correctly. The reason that he talks to them about the Lord's Supper is because they are coming to the Lord's Supper drunk and they're gluttonous and they have all this unconfessed sin. And he says, you know, as a result of you going through the motions of worship with unconfessed sin, some of you are, are weak and some of you are sick and some of you have died. Wow. Right? Sometimes we, we suffer because we're experiencing the consequences of our own sin. But then there's a third reason that we suffer, and that's because the world is broken. The world is just broken. And just because a believer doesn't mean that you get rescued out of all of that brokenness. In fact, I have an interesting observation. It seems to me that Christians get cancer as much as atheists. It's a false expectation. Well, all of life will work out well and I will prosper in every way, physically and financially, if I trust in Jesus Christ. That's just not how God works. So where is God in the midst of our suffering? Well, sometimes he's, he's disciplining us and training us as we experience the consequences of our sins, so that we'll live rightly and righteously. And we learn wisdom through that. That's one of the reasons uh, that God allows us to suffer. It's also one of the things that he does in our our character. He trains us to obey. James 1 will say, um, count it all joy, right? When you're encountering various trials, right? Literally multifaceted. So no matter where it's coming from, how it's coming, Consider it a joy. Why? Because in the midst of that, when you, you learn uh, endurance, your character is formed. And you become, he says, perfect or mature and complete and lack nothing. My temptation when I'm suffering is make it stop now. Right? Or just anything I can do to get out of it. James is saying being pass- be passive, but he's saying literally to endure means to remain under it. Right? What is God teaching me through this about the character that can be grown? But then there's the third thing that God does in our lives and through our lives when we suffer, and that is that he, he extends the impact of our testimony. 
Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And him, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that he might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. Right? Jesus hanging on the cross, he's like, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he didn't lose faith. He struggled and he wondered at the silence of God, but he knew that through his suffering, God would bring salvation to all people. And so Peter here says, you've been called for the same purpose. Since Christ suffered without lashing out, without reviling. And he says, follow in his steps. Because when you're suffering, maybe just because you live in a, a broken, fallen world and, and you're suffering physically or you suffer financially, you suffer these things, but you still choose to say, I trust in God that he's active in my life. That, that multiplies the effectiveness of your testimony incredibly powerfully. Remember, church, the story's not about us, right? We're in the, we're in the middle of this incredible story of God. And it's about Jesus reconciling people to himself. And sometimes the most powerful way that he includes us in that story is when we suffer and we suffer and joyfully praise the Lord in the midst of it. Right? And what we have to do is we have to step back and remember this, this bigger story that God is accomplishing, that, that we're a part of, so that we can say even like Joseph, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I may not even see that good yet, but God is working good in my life and ultimately in your life to accomplish his story. Right? So sometimes God is silent. Sometimes uh, God is present in the suffering. Sometimes he's present in silence. Sometimes he's present actually in deliverance. Sometimes he actually does step in. Right? And there are those miraculous moments that we want to have happen all the time, but they don't. But sometimes they do. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15. Let's continue the story. It says, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and he said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. A good lie in the moment, right? So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you're to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you're to keep alive. Now, there are a couple of really highly unusual elements in this story. Uh, it says, The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. That's bizarre. Right? Think about it for a moment. This is the most powerful ruler on earth. He's Egyptian. Egyptians don't interact with Jews. But he's interacting with Jewish women who are midwives. I mean, in terms of the, the social ladder, he's the very top. They're the very bottom. And yet he directly is interacting with them, which I think is just like a, an illustration of extreme micromanagement, right? He, there's something that, that he wants to happen. It's not happening. So he, he directly tells them. Now, the other really unusual element is that these, these ladies are named. 
As you read the narrative, one of the things you're going to notice is a Pharaoh is not named. Pharaoh is his title. We don't, we're not told his name. Uh, his magicians, the highest court officials in the land, they're not named. The elders of Israel, they're not named. But these two ladies are named, right? And they're named in Hebrew. It's kind of stretched out, right? There, there could be more concise way in, in Hebrew to say uh, their names were boom, boom, right? But instead it's one was named Shifra and the other was named, right? It's, it's drawn out. It, the point is Shifra and Pua, which means like fair and beautiful. And I mean, they're just, they're wonderful names. And he, the, the author saying, the Lord is saying, remember these names. But it's kind of like Mary when she anointed Jesus' feet with oil. Her name will be remembered. Don't forget these names. Shifra and Pua, don't forget their names. Because these women were so courageous and defied the greatest ruler on earth, God accomplished deliverance through them. It's incredible. And this deliverance was just a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance that he would accomplish. right? Because one of the sons that was delivered by these ladies was Moses, right? Who would bring about the deliverance of the entire nation. Right, so sometimes God delivers us from struggles and suffering and um, we're miraculously rescued from physical issues or financial or relational. We see God dramatically step in because sometimes uh, God just wants to whoop up a little bit, right? I mean, he's going to whoop up on Pharaoh and all of Pharaoh's false gods. He's just going to make a mockery of them. He's going to destroy the whole Egyptian army. And you know what? All the nations are going to hear about it. They're going to go, whoa, I guess he isn't one of those puny little regional local gods. He, he, is, he is very, very different. And so sometimes that's what God does in our lives. He intervenes in a beautiful, dramatic way. Why? Because he's writing this wonderful story, not about us, but about his son and reconciling all nations and all peoples and all tribes and tongues through his son, through our lives. Right? He includes us in that story, sometimes through his silence, sometimes through suffering, sometimes through dramatic deliverance, right? but, but always with a purpose. Right? God is always present with us for a purpose. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33, verse 15. It says, And Moses said to the Lord, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And this is a, a story that we'll get into in a few weeks, but it, this falls at the tail end of, of Moses going on to the Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. And then uh, while he's there, the people fall into idolatry. They make the golden calf, right? And uh, as Moses is coming down, the Lord says, you know, step back, Moses, because I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> Moses goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Then the nations will hear about it, and they'll know that you didn't have the power to deliver them. Lord, I don't think that that's in your best interest. He says, all right, I won't wipe them all out but I'm not going to go with you any longer. And Moses says, Lord, there's actually nothing special about us except for your presence. But if we don't have your presence, then would, would you just stay with us in the desert? Right? It'd be better to be in the desert with you than to be in the promised land without you. Your presence, Lord, is what makes us different and distinct and special. That's, that's, what, that's what sets us apart, Lord. 
And so God said, okay, I will go with you, right? Because my, and my presence will be among you and I will dwell among you. I will be your God and, I will, and you will be my people. And that was for a purpose. Right? Genesis, or Exodus chapter 19 is key to understanding what we're going to be talking about all semester. It reads like this. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all of the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, God says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be present among you so that you can be present among the nations. And you can mediate the blessings. What does it look like for a people to live in right relationship with God? Well, get around Israel. God is present with his people. That's what makes them special. That's what makes them unique. That's what sets them apart. He says, the reason I've done that for you, and I've said, you will be my special possession among all the peoples of all the earth, because all of the earth is mine, and I've chosen you, even though you were small and insignificant, even though I took you out of your your dysfunction and your immorality as a family, but I've chosen you so that you would be a kingdom of priests to me. That is, you would mediate my blessings to all of the nations. Now I ask you, when you think of a priest, what do you think of? Now, I didn't grow up in a liturgical church, so you know when I think of priest, I think of I think of robes, I think of collars, I think of hats and scepters, I think of things that are very liturgical. And honestly, what I think of when I think of a priest is someone who's completely separated from the culture and irrelevant. That's just that's just kind of because of my background. I just think disconnected, irrelevant. But what Peter tells us is, quoting this very passage, he says, You, church, are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're priests. You're a people for God's own possession. You're his special possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You want to know your your purpose on earth? Memorize 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The priest of God is the most relevant person on earth. Because God's writing this beautiful story. Not about you, but you're included. And how are you included? You're included as a priest. God is present in your life. He can't not be present in your life. Because he's, he's Yahweh. He's the Lord. He's the great I am. Always existent. Always present. And he's present with you in your life for a purpose. Sometimes in silence. Sometimes in suffering. Sometimes in dramatic deliverance. But he's always present with you for a purpose. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that all the people around you can can experience the mediation of the blessings of the presence of God in and through our lives. Right? We mediate the presence of God. God is present with us so we can be present with other people. And they can experience life with God through us. Church, that's our calling. So how do we apply this? Well, I'm going to give you another really specific opportunity this morning. As you were coming in, you got an every neighbor map. And the purpose of this map is this. I want you to begin to, to be a little more intentional about thinking about the people around you. For whom you are a priest. Are you, you know God. God is present in your life. And God wants to be present in their lives. And God can be, they can begin to experience the presence of God through you. So... Uh, think about where you live. Think about your neighborhood or your dorm. Where you live in an apartment or a home. Who are the people around you who need to know Jesus? Uh, where do you learn? Students, if you're in class or maybe you're a teacher, you work. Uh, or where do you play? What are your hobbies? 
Right? Be in all of those spaces. Be, be fully present right, in all of those spaces. Be intentionally present in all of those spaces. Write some names on there. Share those names with others so you can begin to pray and seek opportunities to serve them, to you know, pray for them, to, to share the gospel with them. Say, God, open up those opportunities and give me boldness and courage to mediate the blessings of your presence to all of these people. And it may be that this semester, the way that he does that most powerfully is he allows you to suffer a little bit. Or maybe he allows you to long for something deeply and you ask and you ask and you ask and it seems that God is silent. And as you're, 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 you're remaining under the trial of suffering or as you're waiting in that period of silence, they see that you trust your God and you believe that he's trustworthy and he's present with you even if you can't see him or hear him. Or maybe God accomplishes a dramatic deliverance in and through your life and that's how they see his presence. You, you don't get to choose that part of the story, but you are in the story. Right? And it's the only story. It's the best story. It's God bringing people into an eternal relationship with him. And church, that's why we're here. So let's live in that space. Fully present with all of the people around us. Right? Consciously and intentionally moving into their lives. Because he will never leave us or forsake us. And we can bank on that promise. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those who are experiencing your, your silence right now. That they would trust that you are working in and through their lives in a powerful way. Or those who are suffering, Lord, I pray that you teach us to endure. Father, I pray that you, you, you grow our, our character and our trust, our strength in the midst of suffering. Father, even as we long for and we experience at times your, your dramatic deliverance, I pray that we would give all credit, all honor, all glory to you. And I pray, Father, that you'd use all of these multifaceted, varied experiences in our lives in a beautiful and powerful way to draw others to your son, Jesus. Father, thank, thank you for letting us live uh, on mission and on purpose with you. Thank you for including us in your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Uh, if you have some stories that begin to emerge about opportunities and conversations, I'd love to hear about that. We'll see you next week.